0: he just came on now let's try to get closer to the stage sorry excuse me right there. thanks a million do you want to go on my shoulders what sorry do you want to go on my shoulders yeah that'd be unreal thanks wow 3 celebrates connections made by music this summer find out more at 3.ae forward slash music blog talk radio Hello, and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome Frank Delaney. Among many other things, the author of The Last Storyteller, a novel of Ireland. Frank Delaney, welcome.
1: How nice that you've invited me. I'm delighted to be with you, Magdalena.
0: And I'm delighted to have you. Look, before we start chatting, um, could I ask you, please, and I'm only asking because I love to hear your voice, um, can you read to us a little bit from the last storyteller?
1: Now, I wonder what should I read. I wonder, should I read perhaps the author's note, maybe at the very beginning, or should I read something maybe from the very beginning of the book, where the narrator, Ben McCarthy, meets the storyteller for the first time. He's been longing to meet him. He's been waiting all his life to meet this wonderful man, and this is the beginning of chapter one, as Ben McCarthy, the narrator of this novel, goes to meet the man who is supposed to be the last and the greatest storyteller in the world, the greatest traveling storyteller that is. Here we go. He comes back to my mind when I smell wood smoke. We had a clear and crisp October that year, and a simple white plume of smoke rose through the trees from his fairy tale chimney. The long, quiet lane ended at his gate. My nose wrinkled as I climbed out of the car. Applewood? Not sweet enough. Beech? Possibly. From the old mansion domain across the road. Could it be elm? Twenty years later it would be, as the elms died everywhere. A white fence protected his small yard and its long rectangles of grass. He had a yellow garden bench and rose bushes, "'pruned to austerity. "'Around the side of the house "'I counted one, two, three fruit trees. "'If, on a calendar, a tourist brochure, or a postcard, "'you saw such a scene, "'with the golden roof of thatched and smocked straw, "'a pleased smile would cross your mind. "'Not a sound to be heard, not a dog nor a bird. "'My breathing went short and shallow, "'and I swallowed, trying to manage my anticipation.' Somebody had polished the door knocker so brilliantly that my fingers smudged the gleaming brass. They said that he was 80. Maybe he was. But when he opened the door, our eyes came exactly level, and I was six feet three and a half inches. He shook hands as though closing a deal, and I was so thrilled to meet him at long last that my mouth turned dry as paper.
0: Hmm. I love that. Um, now, one of the things I note, and this comes a little later on, is that John Jacob O'Neill uh, is very particular about, about things like the way his garden looks, about the way a person should look, certainly about the way a shanaki should look. Talk to me a little bit about that, the sort of relationship between, I, I suppose, the outward look of things and the inner meaning of it. He's a
1: meticulous man. He believes that you should dress for the job which was an old belief among the men of my father's and my grandfather's generation. Um, I had an uncle who had a a very um, senior position in Irish commerce, in a government organization, transport organization. And he dressed very carefully for work every day. He was meticulous with his collars. He was meticulous with the shine on his shoes. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you would think, was my grandfather, my mother's father. The uncle was my father's brother. But my mother's father was a train driver, and he went to work every day with the shiniest boots, a perfect suit, a three-piece suit, back suit, a perfect white shirt and stiff white collar, and his watch and chain across his tummy on his vest. So here were two men doing totally different things, one in the halls of commerce among accountants and lawyers, and the other driving a train which in those days was fed with coal and therefore not exactly... The keenest and most pristine of environments, both dressed for the occasion. I like to explore the relationship between competence and appearance. I like the idea that you might be able to judge a man's capabilities, if not his spiritual capacities, from the way he presents himself to the world. And John Jacob O'Neill confirms that in this book as he's training. Ben McCarthy, the narrator, to be indeed the last storyteller. The title is ironic in that sense. And he actually discusses with him the kind of clothes that he should wear. Ben asks, for example, should I wear a colorful coat, an exotic coat like Joseph's coat of many colors? And John Jacob O'Neill raises the question of, yes, it would be exotic and the children into whose house you'd come would love it, but would they be looking at you more than listening to the story? Would they be distracted by the coat? And that comes from a kind of personal experience. I have always, since I was 20 years old, worn a pocket handkerchief in every suit I wear, every jacket I wear, except when I was reading news on television. I was a news anchor on television in Ireland because I feared people would be distracted. So in a sense, you're seeing all of that come out in this book. Isn't it amazing what floats to the surface of an author's mind?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And another thing about the appearance of things, of course, is, is the notion of a sort of sleight of hand. Um, it's a, a common theme through the book, this idea of almost uh, the storyteller, and not just the storyteller, but you know, the, the magician, mm-hmm. the person who creates a kind of uh, visual impression.
1: Well, nothing is ever what it seems, is it? And in a novel, if you mean to hold people's attention, and if you mean to be poetic at the same time, and I certainly mean to do both of those things, you have to use a certain sleight of hand. Uh, Nabokov, shortly after he wrote Lolita, was being interviewed about what constitutes a writer, what is a writer. and Nabokov, who was not a, a shy, hanging back, withdrawn sort of man, said, a writer is three things. A teacher, a storyteller, or a magician. He said, of course, the great writer, like me, is all three. <laughs> yes. Now, I'd settle... Magdalena for any one of those but obviously the top priority I would think is magician because the magician breaks all barriers in the world, the writer breaks the fourth dimension, all artists break the fourth dimension, get into the fourth dimension because they defeat the dimension of time you write something and it is there as you've written it at that time, and time is its master time is its slave after that, it is time's master Well, likewise, if you're writing magic in a book, if you mean to have sleight of hand in a book and you mean to use it, then use it in two ways use it for its own sake and use it also as a metaphor.
0: Hmm. Now, tell me a little bit uh, about the notion of the Shanaki, the storyteller. And the the title would suggest, and you, you did mention the irony in this, that it's a dying tradition. Um, after all, literacy is now fairly common. But I have noticed it seems to be coming back in again. I I, I did some searching, and there are professional storytellers, like Eddie, Eddie, uh, Eddie Lenham, and we've got Aboriginal storytellers here, like Pauline McLeod and Anna Jarrett.
1: There's quite a, a, a new demand for it, because I think it probably in some ways never went away. It only went dormant for a while. Um, We have this need for story. There's no doubt about that. In our lives, we have a need for story. We need to tell ourselves our own story over and over again. And that, I think, is a sign of emotional health. And I think telling ourselves our own story over and over again makes us healthy. It's good for us. Um, In Ireland, which is the thing with which I'm most familiar, the traveling storyteller came from the most ancient tradition. Now, going back to before the time of literacy, before the time of St. Patrick, in the eons when there were druids and bards and people had castles and large farms and all the rest of it, um, the bard, the traveling storyteller, would arrive in the evening, and he, he might be resident. He might be somebody who lived there, but he was expected to be able to produce stories. Interestingly, there were often satires on the enemies of the household where he was visiting or where he was resident. And he would use very bitter satire to tell his story. But through their storytelling, through their fireside storytelling, just as with Homer in Greek, in Greece, the stories were preserved because they had this wonderful body of literature, of oral literature, vivid, wonderful stories told about Finn McCool and Kukul and great battles and great queens and great hunting scenes and marvelous chess games and amazing courtships. And these had all been told by firesides in Ireland, a relatively civilized country, before the time of Christ. St. Patrick arrived in the year 432 AD, it's commonly believed, and he brought with him a retinue of young bishops and priests who ordained the Irish male followers who attached themselves to that retinue. And these Irish boys became monks and then learned Latin. And then they went into monasteries which were founded by their leaders in Ireland and in the monasteries. They did these wonderful illuminated manuscripts, like the book of Kells, for example, the Lindisfarne Gospels in England. These enormous hymnals, for example, are books of scripture, which were used for worship and prayer in the abbeys and exchanged between abbey and abbey. But as well as that, when they weren't writing those, these boys wrote down the record of their own country. They would write about a piece of land who owned how many acres, how many plot measurements, so on and so forth. And they also wrote down the legends that they had heard as children in the oral tradition from the storytellers around their own side. So you had this figure of the wandering storyteller walking into a household in the evening, and it continued right up to my parents' time. I only just missed it by a few years. Arriving at dusk and sitting down and beginning a story of ancient Ireland, and that's the tradition from which the mythology is coming, and that's the tradition in which these novels in particular have been written by me. Mm.
0: And yet the written form of, of a story is, is fixed. It is a it's this moment in time, as you've mentioned, whereas every single verbal rendition is, is different. It's fed by the audience. It changes and morphs, as it does indeed in the book, depending on what the audience needs. And
1: the storyteller himself will never tell the same story in exactly the same way two nights in a row, because he's changing all them. It's, it's like jazz. It, it, there's, there's constant variation, where people, people are riffing all the time, and storytellers riff all the time, and they riff on their own stories, um, whereas, the, whereas the actual literary version is done and is there, it's frozen in time for all time. I'm doing something at the moment which is consuming me with interest, which is this. <clears throat> I have started putting up publishing on the Internet, Worldwide, it's on Amazon. You can just click on Amazon.com, uh, I think it is, in the United States. Um, I've been publishing a series of long, short stories. There are two up so far, and there's a third going up, with an introduction. And they're stories narrated. They're told stories, but they're written down as a Shanaki would have told them, Magdalena. In other words, I'm taking stories which I am inventing, and I'm telling them as though I were... A traveling Shanaki coming to your house, sitting down in front of the fire with a glass of whiskey in one hand and my pipe in the other, which is what they did, even though I'm not in any way remotely like that sort of man, and I'm telling these stories in the same verbal style. So I'm trying to render, so to speak, the style, the spoken style of the storyteller in a written fashion. And it's proving. Enormously interesting i 'm enjoying it immensely i 'm trying in a sense to close the gap of centuries so that on the one hand I captured the mood and the fluidity of the shanaki but on the other hand, I then preserve it
0: so are you identifying with Ben McCarthy?
1: No, I never did you know that 's the odd thing. A number of people have asked me that was Ben McCarthy based in any way on me he 's not in fact he 's um um His home in these three novels, in Venetia Kelly's traveling show, The Matchmaker of Gunmare, and now the last storyteller in the trilogy. His home Mm. is a house that's two and a half miles from where I grew up. In fact, I drove past it very recently, and I knew the family who lived there, and I'd always liked that house, and I'd always thought growing up that it was a very good location to use for uh, a successful or well-to-do farmer in Ireland, and that's the location. That's the nearest he comes to me in that sense, and his territory is all mine. That area is the area I roamed as a boy. It's the area where I go back to in my imagination. Um, He's not in any way autobiographical. If you ask me, is there anybody autobiographical in the books, I would be closer, if anything, in character to Vinicius Kelly than to Ben McCarthy.
0: And I suppose all the characters have a touch of autobiography. And oh, I think the so. They're
1: nothing. composite characters, and we are complex characters. I mean, I can see some of my own attitudes, for example, in John Jacob O'Neill, the old storyteller, the elderly man. Uh, his insistence on meticulousness, his insistence on tidiness, um, his retention, his desire to retain things, his fascination with the stories. Uh, of other lands. He, he can tell you a story from China or Peru as quickly as he can tell you um, a story from Ireland where he grew up. And there's, there's something of that in me and that I'm, so long as it's, there's a sense of pathology in it, I'm enormously interested in it. And in this, of course, uh, um, I'm, in a sense, um, inspired in this by uh, my one of my great inspirations is the writer James Joyce, because he No matter how you cite it, no matter where you go, he depends upon the past all the time for everything he did.
0: Hmm. Now, I just want to, I'll ask you a little bit more about Joyce later. I'm resisting the urge to, to talk about nothing else, but of course, I just love your book as well. I'm a bit of a in myself. Um, but uh, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about The Druid, which you've mentioned, um, your short story. Do you feel that something's changing? That, you know, the, the being able to publish these works as a, a kind of Shanaki in that form is almost another example of the changing relationship between the reader and the writer. Very
1: much. There is a big change between reader and writer. Life has changed enormously for everybody with the opening up of the Internet. In writing, for example, You have this wonderful new creature. I've got a piece about it in the Chicago Tribune here this weekend. You've got this wonderful new creature, the literary blogger. Um, A lot of writing and a lot of writing experiments, a lot of writing development was handicapped by fear for generations, fear of if the book got published, what the critics would say because there were cabals of critics who kept things to themselves. Joyce was almost kept from everybody by critics and academics who we so enthralled by him, and I totally understand that, uh, that they didn't want to share him with anybody. But now we have this thing, the literary blogger, where anybody can open up their own website and write about anything and express their views on any writer under the sun. And many of them are very, very good indeed, your own good self included. Um, I know present company is never supposed to be mentioned, but there we go. <laughs> um, and that is a major development. Criticism has changed. It changed, oddly enough. This is how we regenerate ourselves. It changed here in the United States where I now live. Just as newspapers were beginning to close down their book review sections, believing people were no longer interested in books, well, all you have to do there is start thinking about the huge success of Harry Potter and ask whether people are still uninterested in books. Or the Da Vinci Code or Dan Brown's novels. Or that kind of thing. And enough people said interested in books, but no, the newspapers close down the pages at the same time as the progress were taking over, and you will find far more reviews and astute reviews now on the Internet than you will find in most newspapers.
0: Yes, and I suppose the whole nature of, a, I guess, almost an academically determined canon is changing as well, and I know you've written a little bit about this topic, too. It
1: has changed, and I think it's a very good thing. Um, when uh, for Many years, I did a, a radio show, a weekly radio show for the BBC on their network Radio Four in England, which has a lot of power and influence Radio there I think is in some ways more powerful than television and I had a weekly book show and it was about books and writing and authors, which is the great passion of my life and we had a rule I had a rule on that show that we did not do negative reviewing we did not want to waste the airspace that it People could find enough of that, thank you, in the daily and Sunday news- and weekend newspapers. So everything we reviewed, we recommended, and that was the point of the show. Well, we had a huge listenership. No surprises there, because if you go to a party, if you go to dinner, you go to lunch with somebody, and they say to you, do you know what I'm reading? I'm reading the most wonderful book. I'm reading The Hair with Amber Eyes, or I'm reading a new biography of Edward Thomas, the Welsh poet who died in World War I, I, it's a wonderful book, I'm enjoying it you're going to go out tomorrow and buy that book that was the principle uh, of which, by which I ran that radio show and it was very, very successful as a result now, the critics attacked, attacked me for lack of judgment lack of discernment it wasn't lack of discernment it was a conscious choice not to waste the time being negative and point people to the joys and delights they might find in certain books and that's also changing because the bloggers the bloggers are much more discerning in terms of the broad reach of what they read. They read what they enjoy, and if they don't enjoy it, they tell you very fast. But they don't do it in any sort of envious or difficult way. There's blunt, no, couldn't get on with this, bored after three pages, gave it up. And that's much more honest.
0: Yes, it seems to me that we're moving in a communal sort of direction, which is, of course, a key theme. In The Last Storyteller as well, every story, in, in, talking in terms of stories, but also talking in terms of recommendations, um, even Ben's story is built on the traditions of the stories that preceded it and the impact of the people who are around it. Uh, do you feel that stories and, and shared experiences tend to unite us? And by us, I mean the yeah, human race. The, yeah,
1: the, the, the great thing that is beginning to happen is the thing I have prayed for all my adult life in relation to writing and literature, and it's so important, uh, and it's so exciting, which is that there's a democracy being born. We, have, we are becoming more democratic in what we're saying about writing. We are becoming more democratic about art. We're becoming more democratic because the Internet is forcing us to be. Now, the problem you have there immediately, and it is arising, is a problem of curation. There has to be some curating. There has to be some way in which we learn how to direct people to what is good and what is not good. Not everything that is written is good. Some of it is highly commercial and very successful and wonderfully enjoyable for those who enjoy it. But a, curation, a certain curation is needed. And I think you're going to, that's going to be one of the next developments. You're going to see that because in this, in this zoo, so to speak, somebody has to keep control of the children who are running around with this wonderful new toy and enjoying themselves. But there has to be, in this communal experience, Um, some way, slowly, of beginning to establish standards. In other words, it's a regeneration of the old critical processes, except that now it's much more democratic. The best thing about it, and you're absolutely right, and it's well identified, the best thing about it is that it's fantastically democratic, and it now means that nobody need be daunted by anything in the form of a book. And that's really one of the things that you never hear being said about the e-reader, about the Kindle or the iPad or anything like that. people I found in various surveys we did when I was working for the BBC on that book show in London, people are intimidated by going into a book shop and asking for a book in case anybody will scoff at their taste or scorn their taste. Now, you know the old saying on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Um, Now you can order any book you like and nobody knows what you're reading.
0: Yes, and you can order it quickly, which is quite nice. You can for have also. it within
1: minutes. <laughs> it's extremely nice for an author. I'll tell you, it's also, it's also nice for an author in another way if you're researching something, and you can have it within minutes. And that's terrific. I need it, I needed yes. today to verify something about Charles Darwin, who is a character in a novel I'm writing at the moment. Um, it's still an Irish-based novel, and I needed to to find out something. I needed to research it. I had a complex piece of information about Darwin, at my fingertips. Inside two minutes.
0: Absolutely fantastic. And of course i I now absolutely must read that book about Darwin. So Well if Jamal, I hope <laughs> so. this time next year. <laughs> Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, the notion of exile, or if you like silence, cunning, and exile, to put it another way. Um, this idea of the longest way round is the shortest way home. Um, I personally felt I needed to leave New York City to write about the place with perspective. Do, do you feel that way in Ireland? Well, I couldn't Ireland?
1: write about Ireland in Ireland. I doubt, I doubt that I could write at all in Ireland, actually. I don't think I could write there. I think uh, the, mesh, the, 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 the nets of the place would catch me up. And they would hold my hands down. And I don't think I could lift a pen to write or tap a keyboard. Um, I need the distance for the objectivity. And what exile does is it produces a kind of level playing field inside you. The bitterness of the pain dies down. And the warmth of the good memories rises to meet it. So there's a kind of level playing field. You no longer feel as badly about the sights, the things and arrows that you endured while you were there. And you feel better about the glorious things. And all in all, a rounder, smoother picture emerges. I dream about this quite a lot, I notice. I dream about this very process. Uh, um, and, And in that sense, I find exile extremely useful emotionally. But it's as a sort of creative process that I find it best, because I can look back I can see things when I look back. I was recording some memories today from people at lunch. I can see things when I look back much more clearly than I could ever see anything um, while I was living there. And now I can, be more, I can better use them because of my distance from them. And that's tremendously exciting. The fact that my distance from my own country is empowering me in a way that I never expected in a very fresh way. I, I'm fresher about it now than I've ever been in my life. Yes,
0: it's almost as if you can then mythologize your own country. You can turn it into a real story instead of, you know, I guess the day to day details that bother you. But everything a
1: writer does is a mythologization anyway. Everything, you you process everything through the mills of your memory. And whether it's a rough, tough, rough book or whether it's a lyrical, romantic book, nonetheless, you are altering and therefore you are making a myth of what you once knew to be real. And that is the process. And if you're not doing that, then that is not creative writing. Creative writing, reportage, fact-by-fact fact reportage of your past that seeks to be totally accurate is impossible. And when attempted, always, in my view, goes wrong. But allowing the color of time to seek all over, to saturate your vision of the past um, is, I think, enormously beneficial and that's where you learn. That's how you learn about the processes of the human spirit. Mm.
0: And and Ben McCarthy too is writing from exile to a certain extent. Not just not just place, but time. Yeah, Ben as well. McCarthy.
1: Ben McCarthy is in this particular book. He's in his early forties, and he he has left his home place. He's the only child of a well-to-do farmer, and he seeks not to pursue his fathers and his grandfathers and his great-grandfathers. Life on the farm. He wants something different. He wants to be a reporter of his own people, basically so that he can learn about himself. He has lost in the first book, he loses his beloved wife, Felicia Kenny, the actress, and he has spent spent the next two books looking for her. He's exiled, therefore, from his marriage and from the woman he truly and passionately loves. And indeed, we know from his constant outpourings that he loves her, but we know far more from his actions that he loves her. And that is, therefore, because she's not with him, he's exiled from a crucial part of his spirit. He's always on the move. Somebody pointed out to me not long ago. uh, I'm very restless by nature. Somebody pointed out to me not long ago that every single one of my books uh, has a major character in it who's on the move all the time. Well, Ben is on the move all the time, through his own country, he's like Apollicus in The Winter's Tale, a a snapper up of unconsidered trifles or is it ill-considered, I can't quite remember. But he's snapping up trifles up he's connecting stories, and in the process, he's hoping to teach himself about himself. And in exile, you are teaching yourself about yourself all the time, because you're measuring yourself in your new circumstances against what your life was in your old.
0: Hmm. Now, um, I, I take the storyteller, a storyteller story as being somebody who almost bridges the gap between acting and writing. Uh, Like Dickens, you've done a little theater Mm -hmm. as well, including some public readings of Ulysses in Madison Square Park. Do you see uh, acting and writing as kind of two sides of a coin, inhibiting characters, if you like?
1: You write for the ear, if you have any sense. We read with our ears. And in that sense, writing and acting, or writing and the reading of writing aloud are very close to each other. We don't just read with the eye. We read with the ear. We hear the words on it. The likes of Hemingway and Joyce always read their work aloud before finally submitting it to their editors, their publishers. Um, and therefore, there's a direct and visceral connection. Dickens understood this. Even Harvey, God bless him, even though he wasn't a good reader, he would read his own work. But haven't you found that so many writers would actually offer to read for you? They want to read their own work. There is some thing you need and want to do about your own work. It brings huge difficulty because when I'm reading my own work aloud I immediately see only the errors that I should have corrected and it gets worse <laughs> as the book gets older and you, th- and you become better at what you're doing. You think, oh my God, how could I have written that clumsy sentence? So there's that pitfall but there is a need, there is an undoubted need to express with your voice what you have written with your hand
0: yes I, I do find that I certainly find that people and, and and read and listeners um you know readers also like to hear the author read. There is something about hearing somebody read their own work that really helps you get in almost into the spirit and into the heart. I've of done it. a
1: lot of my own audiobooks, and I've had a, a, a peculiarly intensive reaction to them from the people who know them people who I, i've had this I've had this happen It happened on the first book that I published in the United States when I was living here a novel called Ireland. And um, people read the book. They then heard that there was an audiobook read by the author. They went out and bought the audio book, and then sat down to listen to the audiobook while reading the book again. And they say, they claim. they got a lot more out of it that way. I know myself that for me, the most enjoyable way to ingest a Shakespeare play other than the stage is to read it while listening to a performance tape of a good acting company a commercial disc of a good acting company doing the same play so i'm following the play following the text of the play as i'm listening and i love the idea that people might do that with my work and i can understand why they might get something out of it if they especially if they enjoyed the book in the first place
0: yes and uh, I suppose you're doing something similar um, about, you, you know, with Rejoice in terms of reading Ulysses out loud very slowly, very interestingly. My fondest
1: hope is that the people who are listening to me, and we're now heading for 400,000 downloads um, in under two years. My fondest hope is that the people who are listening to me actually have the text of the book open in front of them and are following the few words or the few sentences or the few paragraphs that I'm unpacking that week. It's a deep and complex book, and my ambition has been, by doing these weekly podcasts on my own website, my ambition has been, at the end of the exercise, not a reference in Ulysses will be left unexplained, and therefore the book will no longer be obscure, that anybody who watches, wants to reach for the book and enjoy it, and relish it the way I absolutely relish it, and laugh out loud, and love it to death. Um, will be able to do so because of the amount of work I'm prepared to put into it. I can't think of a more enjoyable thing to do. It's free. We haven't even attempted to monetize it. I haven't tried to monetize it. I might at some stage, but at the moment it's free for everybody and people are responding in a wonderfully happy and hearty way.
0: And what a, what a long-term It's going to be about 26 that? years, I think.
1: So I think. I mean, at the moment I'm doing. I'm recording at the moment chapter three. As you probably know, if you're up to date with it, and I can only do sometimes two, three, four words at a time, because there are so many references in there. That's fantastic.
0: It is now. Look, we're almost out of time, but I just have to ask you before we go. Um, I know it's a little while yet, but uh, last year you did quite a fantastic rap video for (laughs) Bloomsday. Are you planning something big on the cards for Bloomsday this year?
1: Uh, I'm thinking of a ballad, I'm thinking of a ballad sung to accompaniment, I'm not sure, but it would be the ballad of James Joyce, and um, it would be in an old-fashioned, Kamali kind of fashion, or I might do the ballad of James Joyce in the same spurious tempo and air of the song Finnegan's Wake, because Finnegan's Wake, the title Finnegan's Wake comes from a ballad, an old Dublin ballad that Joyce knew well. So I might do that because it's intricate and it's funny, and I can sort of speak-sing it, if you know what I mean. Um, Like Rex Harston did in My Fair Lady, I don't have to sing it and drive everybody crazy, but I can speak-sing it and still get the rhythm and the tempo.
0: I thought you were going to say the Ballad of Uh, Joe. I know, there's one already
1: there. (laughs) I I probably wouldn't be allowed to put that up on, on the Internet.
0: Uh, that's true. All right. Look, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. But thank you so much for giving us some of your and time. and it
1: was a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you so much.
0: And thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next month when we interview Unaccountable Hours author Stephen Scowfield. See you then. Bye bye.